Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show here, the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. On this Wednesday, February 15th, we are doing a little bit of a later start to the program. I mean, if you're on the West Coast, you're used to Eastern Standard Time supremacy. So this is still like the ripe afternoon hour of four o'clock for you. But seven o'clock in Ontario, five o'clock in Alberta, and uh, a really late, uh, by Andrew Lawton Show standards anyway, 8.30 in Newfoundland. So if you're watching from uh, Goose Bay, if you're watching from Gander, if you're watching from St. John's, or uh, what was the other place I went to in uh, Newfoundland? I was only there for like 12 hours once when I was coming covering the Aaron O'Toole campaign, and I'm my experience was apparently so lackluster that I have forgotten the name of the one place I went to in Newfoundland. It has like a... It was on the west of Newfoundland. I don't know. I'll figure it out later. That'll be the, the next episode of the Andrew Lawton Show is where in Newfoundland is Andrew Lawton or was Andrew Lawton. But uh, in any event, I will say, by the way, I have uh, been to all provinces in this country but one, and that one is Manitoba. And a friend of mine said, well, you got to go to Manitoba to complete the set. And then I had another friend say, uh, well, if you've gone this far without going to Manitoba, you should just on principle go the rest of your life without going to Manitoba. And I would think if I can go the rest of my life without having to go to Manitoba, uh, that would actually be a sign of some good decision making based on some of the things I hear about that province. But I, I, other people, if you want to tell me all the great things about Manitoba, uh, please do, although it may be a, a short segment. So uh, we will welcome you. I, I don't like making fun of Manitoba. I'm sure Manitoba is lovely. So uh, we'll get on to the real stuff because lots of things are happening in the wonderful world of Canadian politics and news this week. Uh, Brenda Lucky resigning or retiring. No, not resigning, retiring. A personal decision. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Christine Anderson, the German member of the European Parliament who we had on the show a couple of weeks ago, she is getting ready to board a plane to Canada tomorrow. So I will be very much keeping an eye on that to make sure that when she lands at, uh, I don't know where it is, Pearson Airport or something, that uh, she is allowed through customs. I've talked to a couple of the people that are on the team that's putting this cross-country tour together. And I say, let me know the second she's admitted to the country or denied entry, because I think that's going to be an important thing to watch. And what else is happening? We've got, uh, of course... Pierre Polyev celebrating World Agriculture Day, and he did this video, which I thought was quite a, a well-done video. He did it in the style of those, you know, God made a blank ads, you know, God made a fighter, God made a farmer. That was the one he did. And I was watching and I was saying, wow, this is a really nice video. And then I just sort of saw the ode to the dairy farmer and was reminded of the conservatives' uncomfortable fetish with supply management, which I think needs to end. And that's going to be like on the wish list for a conservative leader and what Maxime Bernier would have done as conservative leader had he won that leadership back in, in 2017. But as it stands, conservatives still love supply management. So uh, we're going in every which direction here. Let's talk about Brenda Lucky, because this is the woman who has for the last uh, nearly five years been the commissioner of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Uh, according to her statement, she was brought aboard to deal with a few things specifically. Now, she writes here that as commissioner, I was asked to modernize and address the RCMP's internal challenges. And I know, uh, sorry, and then she says this was a significant mandate 
and with the support of my senior executive team and the commitment of all employees of the RCMP, we've accomplished quite a lot. She says, I'm so proud of the steps we've taken to modernize, to increase accountability, address systemic racism, ensure a safe and equitable workforce, workplace, and advance reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. Our progress can be found on our website. More on that statement in just a moment. Let's talk about the circumstances. Her term was coming to an end. It could have been renewed. It probably wasn't going to be. So Lucky says here that she has made a personal decision to retire. Now, this is the first line of the statement. Today, I announced that I have made a personal decision to retire. Does that not sound like the kind of thing you say when someone is standing behind you and they've got like a gun pointed to your head and they're saying, look into the camera and tell them that you're being treated nicely. I'm not saying that's what's happening as dramatically, but when she throws it out there, it makes it sound like it wasn't exactly a personal decision. And I have no inside knowledge of this. Maybe it is personal. Maybe it's not. What I do know is that Brenda Lucky has been an unmitigated disaster for policing, for the RCMP, and for the country. And far from presiding over modernization, she's presided over more scandals than I can count in the RCMP, not the least of which is this uh, systemic racism boogeyman, which I think at first she said didn't exist and then did exist, and uh, it was tough to keep track, and you got a little bit of whiplash. Uh, she was the one who was uh, running political interference for the Liberals when it came to the Nova Scotia shooting, demanding the release of details about the specific firearms that were used so that the Liberal government in Ottawa could make a politically charged plea to ban certain guns. So this was, again, a political objective rather than a law enforcement objective from the commissioner of the RCMP. And she also was curiously uh, unable to answer pretty key questions when she was publishing uh, her comments and when she was appearing and testifying before the Public Order Emergency Commission. And she was asked about, oh, well, were you at this meeting? Oh, I don't know. Meetings all blend together. It's tough to say. Who, uh, what is a meeting, really? Like she, Again, she couldn't answer anything that was relevant to it. And it, really, she came across as the one that I realized was going to be the patsy of this all. And I don't think it is all that surprising that she, and again, I'm reading between the lines here. I, I am speculating and I don't want you to think I'm speaking authoritatively here. I'm talking about just the questions that I would be asking. She's leaving five days before the Public Order Emergency Commission report comes out. Now, is it because if she leaves after, it will look like she's being punished and she wants to make it look like she's going out on her own terms? Or is it that she actually is going out on her own terms before she gets fired? Because if the Public Order Emergency Commission report comes out with some sort of an indictment, there will be a call for some accountability. Someone will have to be served up on the platter to some people in this country. Now, yesterday I talked about my prediction for how Justin Trudeau is going to take a potentially scathing report and spin it around as being some collective failing that really has nothing to do with him. But I think that there are people are going to want a fall person. I can't say a fall guy. That would be too uh, cisgendered of me. So a fall person and perhaps Brenda Lucky would have been the fall person. I think she should have been forced to resign over the Porta Peak, Nova Scotia killing and her role in that, which was absolutely shameful. And the lack of accountability at the RCMP, which is similarly shameful. 
So if you look at what Brenda Lucky has actually done, she has become the commissioner that has been tied to a period of the RCMP in which I think the esteem in which Canadians hold the RCMP has only gone down. But I want to return for just a moment to her statement. She writes, she made a personal decision to retire. Yada, yada, yada. This was not an easy decision, as I love the RCMP. Okay, yada, yada, yada. Historic organization, tremendous work. We've made great progress to meet what Canadians expect of us. She was asked to modernize. I'll read the final line again, or the second to the final line. I'm so proud of the steps we've taken to modernize, to increase accountability, address systemic racism, ensure a safe and equitable workplace, and advance reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. Nowhere does she say she's proud of the work she did fighting crime. Nowhere does she say she's proud of making the country a safer place. Nowhere does she say she's proud of taking criminals off the streets, of being an advocate for justice. So all the things that I think of when I think of policing or what policing is supposed to be, certainly to Sir Robert Peel, the former Prime Minister of Britain, the founder of modern policing, I think of actual policing. I think of taking criminals off the street. I think of making communities safer. I think of that idea of serving and protecting which just seems to be so absent from the RCMP, which is now the armed enforcement wing of the Liberal government effectively. And Brenda Lucky is leaving and has nothing to say about actually fighting crime. So maybe it's because that wasn't actually a priority for her time as RCMP commissioner. We'll have more thoughts on this in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, the Liberal government has said she deserves to be thanked for her service. This was uh, Justice Minister David Lametti's parting comments uh, just after hearing of Commissioner Lucky's resignation. Look, I, I'm not the minister in charge, and, and it's, it's Minister Mendicino, the Minister of Public Security. Certainly it was a historic appointment, and, um, and I know that, that uh, she made efforts to reform the RCMP and, uh, and to even address some of the issues that we're talking about today. So uh, a historic first step, and, uh, and, and again, she deserves to be thanked for her service. It's all about historic. It's not about being effective. So take from that what you will. No one talks about what she actually accomplished, what she did. Uh, the RCMP is right now facing a big crunch from the people of Alberta about whether they want to continue allowing the RCMP to be their provincial law enforcement agency. And if Danielle Smith wins re-election in the spring, I think it's probably a safe bet that Alberta will push towards an Alberta police force. And I think that right now, the RCMP, which is the provincial police force in most provinces in Canada, I think Ontario and Quebec are the only two exceptions to that, it's going to start being, I think, a big question people are asking. Do we trust this organization for all of the issues it's had to be the authority on our local law enforcement? And, I, you know, again, we've heard from um, premiers in places like New Brunswick, uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, where they want the RCMP as their provincial law enforcement body to not enforce the federal government's gun grab. And, and I think the RCMP itself has been a little uncomfortable with that. But I say power to those provinces, and I think they should be encouraged to do that. But I don't trust the RCMP 
to be the one that doesn't take the federal government's side when push comes to shove on that. So uh, that's a bigger issue than we have time to get into to the show today. But I think we need to have a big question about the RCMP's role in Canadian policing in general. And for all that Brenda Lucky wants to laud her success at modernizing, uh, public trust in the RCMP is down. None of these key issues have been dealt with in the least. We are going to switch to a topic near and dear to my heart, which is the moral panic surrounding the COVID era any moment now. But first, I want to just share this trailer uh, for a documentary produced by our friends at secondstreet.org called Defund Putin. Uh, basically, the question is, how can Canada cut Vladimir Putin's military budget? And I had an email from someone just a few moments ago that didn't like that I was uh, being all pro-Ukraine with this. And I, I would just say, the ad doesn't even mention Ukraine. I, I think regardless of your your perspective on the war, you should surely believe that energy policy in energy-rich nations should not be enriching places like Russia and similarly to Saudi Arabia. So I view this as being a significant energy discussion more than anything else. But uh, nevertheless, I will let the trailer do the talking. This is Colin Craig. In order to stop Vladimir Putin's war machine, we need to reflect on the old expression, follow the money. It's not a thriving, expanding, growing economy. Russia today is essentially a gas station. Vladimir Putin has been working behind the scenes to sabotage his competitors. Putin and his cronies helped fund the anti-shale gas propaganda that led seven European countries to ban fracking. Do we stand up and help the world wean itself off of Russian oil and natural gas? Or do we keep our resources in the ground and let the world stay dependent on tyrants like Vladimir Putin? Now, getting right back into the thick of things, yesterday we did the retrospective on one year since the Emergencies Act, and it's impossible to talk about the Emergencies Act and the Freedom Convoy without the broader question of what context gave birth to those things, and that was, at the time, two years and a little bit of COVID policy in Canada, which has been analyzed in a newly expanded book by Barry Cooper and Marco Navarro Gini called Canada's COVID the Story of a pandemic moral panic. Now, we are uh, supposed to be talking to Marco and Barry, although uh, Marco seems to have drifted off into the ether. So, uh, Barry, the floor is yours uh, solo for the first little while here. It's uh, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Uh, yeah, you're welcome, Andrew. Uh, yeah, the first edition um, came out in November of 2020, uh, and it dealt with events up to about the beginning of the fall. Uh we discovered that, that it didn't end in November 2020, and there was so much more interesting stuff uh, that came along over the next uh, 18, 20 months uh, that we decided we would, uh, you know, keep notes as things were going on, and uh, pull this uh, new expanded version together. Uh, the main purpose of it um, is to document the. I don't know how to characterize it politely, but this, let's say the mendacious acts of governments and government bureaucrats, uh, the media, academics, particularly guys in the uh, in the medical schools, um, that uh, otherwise it'll be forgotten uh, 10 years from now uh, because there won't be any record. There'll, there'll be a remembrance maybe that some people didn't like the government responses but we basically provided an analysis about why people didn't like it, uh, because of the lies that were told by bureaucrats, by docs, 
uh, and especially by politicians and the mainstream media. That was the purpose of it. One of the things, just to go back to January 2020 here, that I, I think is important to note is that, you know, we were looking at the people in the lab coats and the people in the suits on television as being authorities on what was happening, but they were largely getting their information from the same place as we were. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what was happening. They were looking at the news footage out of China, eventually Italy and, and Iran, and I, I think that was a big problem is, is that they seem to be a lot more confident than they should have been. And I think that was where a lot of that public trust was eroded quite early on. Yeah, I, I, I agree. That's exactly what happened because the rest of us could read the sources that, uh, not that very many people did, mind you, but it, it was certainly available. It wasn't hidden. Uh, and the behavior, uh, particularly of, um, let's say, senior people in the in the interface between government policy and uh, and the rest of us, uh, chief medical officers of health in this country, uh, people like uh, Tony Fauci in the States, um, what they said was being contradicted uh, by other people who are just as well credentialed uh, as they are. So in, in many cases, much better. Uh, they actually knew what they were talking about. And um, and the result was, since the rest of the world could read this stuff, um, people just uh, just didn't believe them anymore. It took a while. Uh, anybody who believes uh, anything that comes out, say, of Bonnie Henry's mouth right now, uh, you know, is just gullible as, as uh, uh, you know, as a frog. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the, you know, why anyone would after she's been uh, criticized on the basis of facts for, for so long. I believe we might have uh, Marco back on the line now. So if so, uh, hopefully he'll magically appear in front of us and uh, we will be able to carry on. If not, we'll uh, put you on the hot spot, hot seat for a couple more minutes and, and get him on uh, momentarily. All right. It sounds like there's a, an issue where he is not appearing. So Marco, if you are there, uh, perhaps you can try reconnecting and we'll, we'll get you in here. Uh, and I apologize for the technical issues. This is the nature of live broadcasting. Barry, your background is obviously in political science, and I think one of the interesting things that a lot of people pointed out and government officials didn't really acknowledge ever and still to this day have not is that their actions seem to be largely driven by political science rather than health science and not the uh, the good astute political science that you are a purveyor of, but oftentimes a, a more cynical and less freedom-oriented variety. And And I think this is the big problem that I had with it is that health policy was, and, and by that I mean the stuff that was being put out by public health officials like Teresa Tam or Dina Hinshaw, Bonnie Henry, and so on. Uh, these people have a, a singular focus. They're not constitutional scholars. They're not uh, holistic uh, health officials that are looking at the broader implications of their policy. They were looking at largely the single metric of cases and nothing else. So if their input was being treated as one of many inputs throughout COVID and politicians were also taking in uh, inputs from other places, I, I think there might have been different results. But in, instead, what we seem to see was an, a, a complete delegation of all decision making to these unelected people. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if if this was, in fact, an emergency, there are people around who prepare their uh, their work environment to deal with emergencies. The first thing that happened in Edmonton was the Alberta emergency plan was tossed out the window. Uh, nobody paid any attention to it at all, like zero. 
Yeah, but why have it? Like, I mean, why have an emergency plan if you're not going to use it when there's an emergency, right? Uh, that's exactly right. And it, this was almost unique because when you have, say, um, uh, an earthquake in, uh, the, say, the lower mainland and, and uh, you know, Chilliwack is, uh, is rocked to its uh, uh, roots, um, you don't call upon uh, geographers or volcanologists. You talk upon emergency people and ask them to, to uh, you know, take charge. And that presumably BC still has a, an emergency plan in place. Uh, they just don't, didn't use it for this emergency. Uh, we certainly have it, and we didn't use it. Uh, every other province in the country probably had one, and none of them used it. Uh, it's uh, it's just a it's. Um, I, I would say it it brings up issues that have nothing to do with either emergencies or health policy. It has to do with the anxieties uh, that were clearly present in the in the politicians. They had no clue what to do, and so they basically freaked out and and uh, and said, "Okay, it's about health. What do you say?" Uh, Dina, uh, what, how, why should she know anything? I mean, she's she's a, an MD. She's not a, a an emergencies person. She's not even a, a, a real uh, med scientist. You know, she's not an epidemiologist. She's just an MD from U of A. Why should she do it? Or, or you know, Bonnie Henry, the same thing. Uh, it's a it's a a political. That's why we call it a panic. It was a political panic that caused all of the incredible amount of uh, suffering that Canadians have put up with for the last, you know, now getting going on to three years. And it's completely unjustifiable on medical or any other grounds. Is your belief that they, I'll ask this in a different way, because one theory that I've had is that they were pot committed at a certain point and they had invested so much in their narrative that they didn't actually have the ability to walk it back without just completely undermining anything they'd been telling us for the last two and, and eventually three years. But the flip side of that is that they're true believers and that even now the people that have been championing the policies that you're uh, poking holes in, rightfully so, they still believe and will to their dying day that they were the right calls. And I'm curious if you have a sense of, of which camp they're in. Do you think that they, they got so far into it that they couldn't walk it back anymore? Or do you think they're still true believers? Uh, they can be both, uh, quite frankly. Uh, most, uh, I, I came from a medical family. Uh, and one of the things, my, my dad was a surgeon, uh, my sister was a doc. Uh, one of the things that you learn pretty clearly uh, is that doctors, particularly when they, they have responsibility for life and death, uh, don't generally uh, take much uh, second thoughts. <laughs> they, you know, they have a job to do, they do it. Uh, they're not really good at reflecting on whether or not they've done the right thing. Uh, and that's certainly true for uh, these sort of, uh, you know, I would I, it's not even fair to call them second rate docs, but, but the, the bureaucratic docs uh, keep the same attitude without the same competence. Uh, and so that when when you have uh, people who are who are genuinely expert in some of these matters, uh, like the the people who uh, who signed the Great Barrington Declaration that said you got to look after the people who are vulnerable, not everybody. These were got these the three big big universities in the world: Oxford, Harvard, and Stanford. That's where these guys were from. Uh, Dina Henshaw said, "Oh, we disagree." Like that was it. Uh, she probably didn't even understand what these guys were saying. Uh, and because she, at the time she had the ear of the premier, uh, it, nothing happened. They just continued the same kind of, of uh, uh, let's say, misguided, to be polite about it, 
uh, policies that they had uh, already put in place. I know to, to get to the bigger picture, and I, I'd say the more philosophical underpinning of this, I, I know that the uh, the book's blurb draws a reference to Hannah Arendt, who, you know, the author of the, the famous book, The Banality of Evil, and, and her uh, thoughts on bureaucratic tyranny. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on that. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> that's one of my, I've, I've memorized this and I've mentioned it in class, I don't know how many times. Uh, it was not actually in the Eichmann book, but it was in another place that, that she says the great problem with bureaucratic tyranny, unlike any other kind of tyranny, is that the desperate remedy of tyrannicide is unavailable. If you if you get rid of one bureaucrat, they will be replaced by another one, who will behave. The other one will behave in exactly the same way. Uh, so it really is a problem. I mean, you can get rid of bureaucrats, uh, which is fine. I mean, that's one of the first things that uh, Daniel Smith did, uh, was to fire uh, fire uh, Dina Henshaw. She should have been fired by uh, Jason Kenney. He'd probably still be premier, if he, you know, if he'd had the the imagination to do that. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't. Well, unfortunately for him, it's, you know, it's obviously good for Danielle, but uh, it was uh, the the amount of of consistent um, errors that uh, bureaucrats are capable of. Uh, you actually have to know something about how public policy is made in order even to believe it. Uh, and it's it's was in this particular instance was really remarkable. They just kept doing the same stupid thing time and time again. Yes, and, and I think I mean your point about Jason Kenny, I, I think is a, an important dimension here because there was very little I mean, some might even say no pushback to the overarching narrative, regardless of which province you were in, whether you had a conservative or a liberal or a, a new Democratic premier. And, and Jason Kenney, again, I mean, a, at the time, a, a lion of the conservative movement uh, going into COVID. Doug Ford, a, again, a, a recent conservative electee in Ontario. Uh, they ended up doing the same uh, as the NDP did elsewhere in British Columbia, as uh, Francois Legault did in Quebec. Uh, to some extent, they went even further than that in, in Ontario. Uh, but there really was no escape from this across the country. And I, I'm wondering if when you were analyzing this, you saw any major regional variants or if it was really that everyone was singing from the same songbook. It was a, a, a remarkable deference of elected politicians, whatever side of the spectrum they were on, uh, to the uh, alleged expertise of self-proclaimed experts. Uh, and at, toward the end of the book, uh, we started reflecting on uh, on Tocqueville, uh, the, the great uh, 19th century uh, de democratic theorist. And he makes the point that, that fear is inherent in democracies and that politicians can see this. And because they um, are not immune from the attractions of, of increasing their power, uh, are quite willing to use fear uh, to do so. Uh, and particularly when it's when it's fed up uh, to them by uh, alleged medical experts, it's a it's a dish that they could not refuse sampling, and they certainly did. And it had nothing to do with their previous ideological predispositions. Uh, one of the challenges of a, a book like this coming out now is, is that. There obviously has been now three years of material to analyze, but I also wonder, and, and this is a, an issue I grapple with even on this show when I decide what I'm talking about, if people are, are less willing or less, I mean, 
mentally capable of, of dwelling in this period. So I, I guess my question would be, do you and Marco hope that this book sort of closes the book on COVID in Canada to move forward? Or do you really think there still needs to be the beginning of a reckoning? Uh, I'm sure that, that I can speak for Marco on this. Uh, we'd like it to be the beginning of a reckoning. I mean, it is a record of what happened. Um, but it is also a kind of, uh, not exactly a prediction, but uh, nothing that we have seen, particularly from the government of Canada, uh, shows any sense of how they've completely screwed up. They, that is that has never, I'm sure, entered the tiny mind of the prime minister uh, that he has anything to apologize for. Uh, and in fact, he seems to be doubling down on the kinds of errors that were uh, implicit in the in the say in the lockdowns well and just just to interrupt you there barry today i believe it was laurier university in ontario announced that it was ending its mask mandate which again a lot of people are saying too little too late but there's no recognition when they do this that they got it wrong it's well now the science supports us doing this is basically their answer so so even when they lift these things that there's never any contrition that comes along with it no no that's right i mean the experts experts are never wrong this is this is the thing we have to remember. That could have been the title of the book right there, I think. <laughs> one one of the uh, things that, that I uh, I wrote this particular chapter, so I remember it, about masks. And uh, it was somebody in the States who'd, who'd actually did a big meta-analysis of, of, I don't know, 70 or 80 studies of masks. And he, and he came to the conclusion that masks are as useful uh, against uh, COVID uh, as chain link fences are against mosquitoes. And I... I thought, yeah, and and people who had looked at the evidence, had looked at the actual research, would know that. Uh, and if you hadn't looked at the research, if you were um, a medical officer of health in this province or in this country and you didn't know what the research was, you just weren't doing your job. And I don't know which it was. I've never talked to any of the three graces that you uh, mentioned earlier, uh, whether they actually knew anything or they just decided uh, on their own without any evidence. It could be either way. Yeah, and I think I just on the masks alone, I remember at the beginning when Theresa Tam was telling everyone not to wear masks, and then eventually it became illegal to not wear a mask, and now we're back to it being a choice and mandates not helping, and it's easy to get a little bit of whiplash on this. So uh, let's hope you get the beginning of the reckoning, and not just you and, and Marco, but I think all Canadians here. Uh, I apologize for uh, whatever technical issues uh, were uh, affecting this. Uh, we'll happily get uh, Marco on the show next week to broaden this discussion. The book... Canada's COVID, the story of a pandemic, moral panic, an expanded edition by Barry Cooper and Marco Navarro Jaini. So, uh, Barry, thank you so much. Uh, and Marco in absentia, I, I thank him as well. But it's great to talk to you. Okay, thanks, Andrew. All right, thanks very much, Barry Cooper. We have to get Barry on to uh, talk about Alberta politics as well. He's a, an instrumental figure in some of the big thinking that I think goes on in the Alberta uh, movement uh, that we have to spend a bit more time focused on, especially as the Alberta election nears. And again, my, my sincere apologies to Marco. Uh, this is always the challenge because we used to do all the shows pre-taped and then uh, you do this impassioned monologue on something saying, Justin Trudeau needs to do this, and if he doesn't do it, 
it's terrible. And then just as the show is being edited, uh, Justin Trudeau changes course and the show is useless. So he said, well, we'll do them all live. It's more fun. We'll get live guests. And every now and then you have to deal with the, a bit of a technical hiccup. So uh, I don't know who we can blame for it. Maybe it's C11 already in effect. You only get one guest now. Uh, there's a quota per show. Uh, but I will say I do for now. We have Fake News Friday coming out on Friday and more of the Andrew Lawton show coming up next week. So do keep your eyes peeled for that. And just as we are reflecting on the one-year anniversary of the Emergencies Act and the Freedom Convoy, I'll put in a shameless plug for my book, which I haven't done in a little while. That is The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. You can pick that up on Amazon. And by the way, let me. speaking of live, uh, Indigo, one week ago. So Indigo, you may remember. This is, okay, bear with me for 90 seconds here. Indigo decided it would not carry my book on store shelves. And uh, my publisher made a little stink about it. The National Post wrote about it. Uh, Indigo, for the last week, has been unable to sell any books online because they had some cyber attack. And apparently their webmaster is the same person responsible for picking uh, what books to carry and not because they're just utterly incompetent. So for a week, you have not actually been able to buy anything from Indigo. And a friend of mine was like, oh, that's so sad. I feel sorry for them. And I'm like... Haven't haven't trouble finding too much sympathy for Indigo, but all right. I had nothing to do with it. The, d don't take my gloating uh, to be involvement or complicity. Uh, well, the RCMP has no commissioner. We're fine. Uh, in all honesty, though, thank you so much. We will talk to you soon. Have a great day. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.